All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank our sponsors for the second hour for making this show financially viable. Our sponsors are Blue Goldwaters Technologies, Prophecy Platinum, Balmoral Resources, Golden Arrow Resources Corp., and SGX Resources. Well, I'm really pleased to have back with me again this week Florian Siegfried. He's the CEO of Precious Capital Limited. That's a Swiss-based hedge fund or mutual fund. Uh, I invited Florian back this week because we did, didn't have the time really to explore some of his, uh, some of his favorite stocks. Uh, so we want to do that again this week. Uh, welcome, Florian. Hey, Jay. Thanks for having me. Good to have you back. Um, you know, we talk, you and I have talked in the past about, the, from a macro uh, point of view, we agree uh, basically because of, I think, because of our similarity in, in views, uh, economic views, as, as thinkers of, along Austrian economic lines. Um, you and I have both talked about this whole, big, this whole thing about inflation or deflation. How does this global economic pathology get worked out? And, you know, most of our friends, gold bug friends, are inflationists. They think because the Fed is pumping huge amounts of money into the system that that guarantees a runaway hyperinflation. Uh, you and I have sort of been in agreement, I think. I remember hearing you give a talk in Asia one time, and I'm sitting on the stage and thinking I could have written the same speech, basically. Uh, you were taking a, a view that deflation was more likely. Do you, do you still hold that view? Yes, I do. Um, because um, banks are just not lending money out and uh, the money they got from the Federal Reserve, which is printed out of thin air, lands as excess reserve at the Federal Reserve Bank and um, uh, so it's not getting lent out. Um, uh, what you see is more asset price inflation and of course consumer prices are picking up too, but it's not this hyperinflation uh, scenario that most gold box would expect and uh, probably they are also disappointed because there is no inflation really showing. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I think the deflationary forces remain very much intact, especially yeah. what uh, concerns asset prices. Well, you know, Florian, one of the things that I see that I believe that is um, will make it less likely that we have any kind of a runaway inflation is this downward pressure on wages. I mean, you live in Europe, and you must see uh, with the depression in Europe through a good part of the Europe, the Eurozone, uh, you know, huge downward pressures uh, on, on wages. And my mother-in-law, who lives in 
uh, in Portugal is having difficulties um, getting the rents she used to get on her property. Uh, it just seems to me that there are so many downward pressures. So I, I think you and I are on the same page on that. But let me ask you this then. What about, um, you know, what is best for gold mining companies? A, a deflationary or credit contraction or uh, a hyperinflation? Uh, I would say in in the current situation where we are, where most people are, let's call them gold bucks, they are disappointed that there is no inflation. I think from the market psychology point of view, if we would get a real boost in inflation, that would be good because people would be uh, would see their scenario materialize that we see prices rising, gold taking off, and obviously they would uh, rush back into the mining shares. Mm-hmm. But that was really the argument they have for gold and for miners. And nevertheless, um, if you get a big boost in inflation, their costs are going to rise as well. And longer term, I, I, I still believe that the deflationary scenario will will be much better because um, if you are in a recession, you are stuck with lower commodity prices, with lower labor costs, where we see mining companies um, uh, which can deal for much better terms with their contractors. All this should reduce costs over time and is by nature deflationary. In the long term, that's the much better uh, uh, scenario for miners, in my opinion. Yeah, I, well, I think you're, not only your opinion, but I think we have some evidence of that in the 1930s. The gold mining companies did extremely well. And after Lehman Brothers, uh, the same thing held true. We saw uh, an increase in the real price of gold, which I measure against the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. And correlating with that was a substantial rise in the uh, in the profits of the major mining companies that I follow. And more recently, as uh, price of energy and other cost inputs have gone up relative to gold, gold has come down in nominal terms, but also in real terms, we've seen a correlation again on the downside with mining company profits falling very, very considerably. But you and I talked last week about a lot of the things that the mining companies are doing to try to improve uh, their situations. And we've noted that there's been a lot of write-offs a lot of uh, mining companies have uh, impaired projects because they were uh, moving huge amounts of rock at low grades. Uh, I think we talked last week that a lot of the mining companies, the producers, are really making adjustments now, aren't they, to try to to reduce their costs uh, so that uh, if we do get a, an increase in the real price of gold, they should be very profitable. Do you share that view? Yeah, I would say um, the big hit has been done in Q2 because with the lower gold price and all the different gold projects in their balance sheet had to be uh, revaluated, and of course they took huge impairments. Um, Industry-wide, we calculated 28 billion in total write-offs or write-downs, goodwill impairments, all stuff like this. And that all uh, was based on, you know, discounting projects at 1300 or 1200 whatever gold price. Mm-hmm. So, uh, of course, what happened, um, these balance sheets in the second quarter uh, look terrible. You know, you know, there is virtually no earning uh, in the positive sense mm-hmm. because all these impairments, they destroyed uh, bottom line uh, the results. But on the other hand, I think um, based on these uh, charges, the market has now reset expectations and the companies themselves as well. 
they know that these projects will not be brought online, will not be built if gold stays at 1,300. Um, but should gold uh, rebound sooner or later, 1,400, these projects um, have been advanced sometimes to a high degree. They have been pre-financed and they have feasibility studies. They are sometimes even permitted. They are just in the backyard somehow. Mm-hmm. And um, in some uh, cases, we feel it takes quite moderate costs, uh, a little time to bring them back online. Mm-hmm. Um, they are not gone away. It's just um, they disappeared out of the books. That doesn't mean they are, they 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 they, uh, they went away completely. They are still there, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, yeah. Uh, they are no longer in the balance sheets of the companies. Yeah, the gold and silver hasn't gone anywhere in the meantime, and uh, so an improvement in the uh, in the economics for mining in general, for gold mining and silver mining in general, would maybe bring some of those back online, right? I think so, yeah. <clears throat> and this is also um, uh, an opportunity to a certain degree, because if you look into, um, uh, especially what we do in the mid-tier producers, there are really some fallen angels, you know, down yeah. 70, 80 percent. Uh, and, um, of course, uh, they, they came down for a reason, because instead of producing 300 ounces, they're doing only 200,000 ounces. Mm-hmm. But you still have this option to get back to 300 ounces uh, for some cases quite easily mm-hmm. without waiting three or four years. And um, that's basically not discounted in the market. I think the market is stuck with 1,300, 1,400 gold price here. It doesn't believe in 1,500, at this time. So you think the market is pricing these things on $1,300 gold pretty much? Yeah, because I think... Um, some of these projects, also if they have like total sustaining all-in costs of thousand um, or thousand two hundred dollars, you still have a margin, let's say hundred dollars an ounce mm-hmm. after after taxes, after exploration, after cash expenditures, after production costs. But this margin is just not enough in the market. We feel. Um, uh, to bring a project back online, you want to see two hundred, three hundred dollar marching per ounce, and for this scenario, you, I think we need to see fifteen hundred, something like this. And only if this happens, the market will gain confidence, and those projects will come back online. Right now, they are just sitting there, and nobody really cares. But it's an option. Yeah. Well, look. Um Speaking of impairments, uh, one of the companies I know that you follow and our, our buddy Chen Lin likes a lot uh, is Oceana Gold, and I see that they reported a loss of $70.4 million, I think, in the second quarter. Uh, and I think that, was that due to impairments or write-downs? Um, as far as I know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't think... study the, the, the details. Yeah. But um, uh, when I met with them in uh, April, it was clear that there will be some write-offs mm-hmm. for the high-cost uh, mine in uh, New Zealand, and obviously, yeah, they took a charge. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a you know that's uh, that's a company that has basically a, a very prop- promising property, a, a gold and copper property in the Philippines that I guess actually has negative. If you, if you use uh, the copper as a credit, you have, actually have negative costs for producing gold. How much gold will they be producing there, Florian? Um, uh, the DPO is um, the cornerstone project. Uh, in a pro- project in the in the Philippines, which has an average grade, I 
I'm not wrong, of about one gram per ton, which is uh, very reasonable for an open pit mine. But the beauty also is it's a copper-gold project that bears about 0.45% copper mm-hmm. um, uh, in, um, uh, in the deposit. So um, that brings them to um, a negative uh, cash costs because you, you, know, you calculate all the copper byproducts as negative um, uh, costs for the gold. And um, uh, I guess they're pretty much on track. Um, it was uh, one of the few mines, uh, big open pit mines, that is uh, ramping up as expected. And I think the throughput for this year is about uh, two and a half million tons of ore, and that's growing to uh, about uh, three and a half million tons by 2015. Mm-hmm. So that is uh, equivalent to a gold production of about 220,000 ounces uh, by 2015. Um, currently at about 170,000 annualized production at negative cash costs. Well, let's say that it's break-even cash cost, even, and uh, the copper prices plunge or go down. And so even there, if they did 220,000 ounces, uh, let's say $1,300 gold, um, you know, we're, lo- we're looking at a margin of $286 million, if my math is correct. And that's, that's, um, that's more than half of their market cap in one yeah. year's production. Right. So they're selling at maybe two times projected uh, operating flow from that one mine, from that major mine. That, For that Philippines. major project, yeah, yeah, but they still would have to, um, uh, you know, they're exploring, and there is a, the, the DPO mine has potential exploration um, uh, around the current concession, and they have the New Zealand operations where they would still have to reinvest some of the capital. Sure. Um, uh, but the DPS standalone is, yeah, very, very impressive, and we should tell our listeners that 293 million shares, stock trades uh, OGC in Canada as a symbol. Uh, I have it at about a dollar sixty-seven. So if you do the math, it's a, it's a little under a 500 million dollar market cap, and producing cash flows from uh, from that one project uh, that would be um, you know more than half of that. So very to me, this is an example. And again, probably the market has punished the company because of uh, of the write-offs that they've had uh, as well. Well, Florian, I know that you just recently, um, I guess recently back in June, uh, you and your team made some uh, made a trip to the Abitibi Greenstone Belt in the in Ontario and Quebec. Uh, what can you tell our listeners about the Abitibi Greenstone Belt? It's very prolific, I know that, for gold production. Yeah, so we made a mine tour uh, in June um, uh, along the belt, which uh, basically starts at the city of Timmins, which is to the east, uh, to the west, I'm sorry, and uh, ends in, in the historical camp of Waldor to the east. So it's a very prolific um, uh, belt. It has produced probably... 200 million ounces of gold since the 1900s. And it has really seemed like a, a revival by two major projects that were put back online, which is Detour Gold and the Cisco Mining. Mm-hmm. Uh, both uh, companies invested probably $4.5 billion, uh, and that brought a lot of attention back to the area, and there is actually a lot of activity going on. So we traveled from uh, uh, along the belt uh, from west to east. Um, we visited uh, a few mines. 
And um, it was just in, uh, in the time when the gold price completely collapsed. So that was the end of June, the last week. Right. And uh, if you, one could expect that it must be re- really a desperate situation when you go down there and you see those miners uh, hardly surviving with this kind of gold price. But actually, it's interesting. We saw the, the opposite. Because um, uh, since the fall of gold in uh, April, <coughs> um, everybody just wants to uh, economize on operations. Uh, is scaling down on costs tries to boost production to bring unit costs down. Um, uh, we saw in each mine hiring of uh, miners, of labor, of qualified people. Mm-hmm. Uh, student uh, courses or summer trainings were held. Um, it's not like um, they gave up on the low gold price. Mm-hmm. Actually, everybody seeks to get uh, talent mm-hmm. at the uh, producing at lower costs and you need talent to do and to achieve those goals. Absolutely. Mining uh, mining talent, the, the skills that are required not only uh, from management, but the guys that go into the mines and or on the surface in the case of an open pit mine. Well, let, let's uh, explore a couple of the companies that you went to see. Kirkland Lake Gold, uh, KGI symbol, uh, $3.67. The last I looked, 70.2 million shares. What can you tell us about Kirkland Lake and its projects? Um, well, Kirkland Lake is um, an, a producing mine uh, in the city of Kirkland Lake, just next to the city. Um, it used to be an old mine that was uh, actually uh, operated by Kinross. It holds quite a significant uh, property. Um, the problem with Kirkland Lake probably was that um, uh, the expansion of the whole project to go from about 100,000 uh, ounces per year of production to uh, 150 to 180,000 was uh, causing some hiccups. Um, they built an additional shaft um, uh, with um, uh, more capacity. Um, uh, they hired about 180 new miners right now, and that all came with a certain costs. Um, we've the, the market has punished the company because they were obviously running behind schedule and the balance sheet was a concern. Um, so the, the stock came off quite significantly over the last two years. Um, but when you actually are on site, um, the good thing is uh, I think they have completed most of their investments. Um, uh, infrastructure looks good. They have uh, installed a third ball mill. Um, which brings their total capacity to 2,200 tons per day. Um, uh, the hoist, everything is up and running. So right now, it's um, they have the infrastructure, they have done all the capital investments to the biggest degree, in my opinion. They have to deliver on production, and um, they have to deliver on grade. So this is, I think, where the market is still reluctant and just watches how each quarter is progressing. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, so um, the market is punishing it. Do you, I guess you own the stock in your in your fund, right? Yeah, we bought it a little bit too early, but um, uh, we think it's one of the few high-grade mines um, uh, that um, uh, are fully functional. If they deliver on their plan, their production growth should be about 100 percent by 2014. Uh, so they have internal growth. They are financed. They have a good shareholder base. 
Um, uh, so it's now all about execution, and we are willing to take some risks. Um, but um, when you look where the stock came from, where we are trading right now, this growth is not priced into stock. There is some execution risk, of course. How many ounces are they projecting to produce? Um, well, the the range we would say is about 150 to 180,000. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, yeah, four ounces per year. And yeah. is there a, is there a cash cost uh, that you that they've talked about or guidance they've given? Well, management targets um, all in costs of below nine hundred dollars. Okay, all right, all right, very good. Uh, St. Andrews Goldfields, another one that you visited and um, uh, trades uh, in Toronto under the symbol SAS. Uh, I've got a price of thirty-seven cents. The last I looked, three hundred sixty-eight million shares. What can you tell us about St. Andrew Goldfields? Um, this is, um, uh, let's say, uh, a, a, a better stock on the gold price because St. Andrew has uh, one problem, and this is the royalty um, uh, agreement they have in place. Uh, I think it's with Franco mm-hmm. um, for one of the major mines, which is the Holt Mine, which is an old underground mine which was formerly operated by Newmont. Mm-hmm. But their margin at current prices is, is um, uh, not very big. Mm-hmm. They're, they're producing probably 100,000 ounces of, year, of gold this year. Mm-hmm. The, the beauty of St. Andrew is the valuation. Um, the market cap is around $140 million, uh, um, but uh, they have a cash pool, uh, sorry, a, t- a tax pool, uh, which is worth around $190 million. Mm-hmm. Um, they made $28 million net profit, to my knowledge, last year. Mm-hmm. And the growth is not coming from the three operating mines they have in production now. The growth would come from the Taylor project, which is nearby the Holt mine. And um, that could boost production by 25 to 30%. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, as I said before, this is like a classical example where management is reluctant to take a, a decision to bring this project online or not, because with 1,300, it's probably too tight on a marching basis yeah. to uh, justify the costs. Mm-hmm. But let, if gold goes up to 1,500, I'm pretty sure they want to bring Taylor into production. And that doesn't have the royalties that... Uh, and that there really is no uh, royalty uh, on Taylor, or probably a small one of 1% or 2%. Yeah. Or, what what's, that, what sort of royalties are they paying to Franco on the on the other project? Um, the royalty, I think it's almost $100 an ounce. I'm no. not 100% sure, but it's well, significant. It's pretty, pretty significant. All right, Osisco, Osisco Mining, uh, OSK, uh, $5.17, 437 million shares. Gigantic project they've got there, right? What's what's going on there? Uh, Osisco is a chain, um, it's called uh, Canadian Malartic. It's mm-hmm. just uh, um, uh, adjacent to the town of Malartic. It's a huge mine. Um, uh, it has. Uh, it's an open pit mine. Um, it has. Um, uh, uh, let me see. I think the whole resource base is about 10 million ounces. No, no even the reserve base is about 11.7 million ounces. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're mining. Um, it was a little bit a challenge to, to ramp up because, uh, to my knowledge, uh, they probably undercapitalized. The mill. 
Um, uh, but now things are turning uh, to the good, and the mill is uh, is impressive. It's uh, 55 tons per day mill, which is running probably now at uh, 50,000 ton capacity. So, uh, Florian, uh, did, uh, let me. Uh, so, did you say 5,500 tons a day? Uh, 50. Sorry, 50,000 tons. <laughs> 50,000 tons per day. Yeah. That is incredible. That is an enormous, monstrous project, then, isn't it? It is, yeah. But with those kinds of projects, you have to make sure that you get the grade. Yeah. So they were a little bit uh, struggling with getting the design grade, and, and I think now the second quarter was already much better. But nevertheless, um, what we saw, of course, um, with a lower gold price, um, everybody starts to, to hydrate, so they... We're basically mining from the northern pit wall where you have material in excess of two grams per ton uh, and you feed and you blend those kind of ore with the rest of the, mm-hmm. from the pit. All right. And, and what are they projecting to produce there and at what cost? Uh, well, I would say gold production over um, mine of life, mm-hmm. which is 15 years, should be about 550 to 600,000 ounces of gold annually. Wow. Um, uh, 2013, I would expect 408,000 to 510,000 ounces of gold. Uh-huh. Uh, and the costs, uh, I would say they are probably breaking even now, um, subject to a successful ramp up. Um, Probably eleven, twelve hundred dollars all in costs. Yeah, so I mean, this is a kind of a of a story that would really benefit with a fifteen hundred dollar gold. Then, wouldn't it? Yeah, these are all these kinds of beta stocks that you can really play when gold stabilizes and right. rebound. As, then these mining comp- these kinds of companies will have tremendous profits. Right. If they break even now, the the market is is pricing them accordingly, and then if we start to see some profits, I think that would really make a, a stock like that jump. Now, a much smaller one that's also in Quebec, uh, Cisco and Metanor both in Quebec. The first two that you mentioned, Kirkland Lake and St. Andrews, I guess, are in Ontario, right? Yep. And Metanor Resources, MTO, uh, trades M, uh, symbol MTO in Canada, 18 cents or thereabouts recently, 268 million shares. I've been on this property in the past um, up in Quebec. They've struggled a lot. Do you see them coming around now, finally uh, finally making some money? Um, I think they're on, uh, on a good way, yeah. Uh, we visited uh, Bachelor Underground Mine, mm-hmm. which is now producing. Uh, we went there with uh, the mine manager, there with the C, uh, COO, Pascal Hamlin, uh, and we got the feeling it's a very uh, good operational team with a lot of experience. And when you go down Bachelor, um, it's impressive how fast they are developing um, the mine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the shaft has been sunken, they are uh, developing uh, all the stopes. Uh, so they can feed the mill uh, from various levels, from various stopes. And when we went on the ground, I think it was level 12 or 14, and uh, you, you get material of like 14, 15 grams per ton, so very high grade. And um, that's, uh, that's all going to be put into production uh, with the ramp up. All right, we've only got a couple of minutes left, and I know there's a lot more to cover. Uh, so I'm going to ask you about uh, a couple of your favorites. And I, um, I think that you had indicated to me 
that a company called Alasser, Alasser, I guess you'd pronounce it, Alasser Gold Corp, uh, trades in Canada under the symbol ASR, 287 million shares, about $3 a share. What can you tell us about that one? Well, Alasser is, uh, is um, a fallen angel because the, um, the original idea was to merge two companies and produce $800,000, uh, 800, ounces of gold. The merger failed. Um, it's, uh, Alasser has a world-class asset, which is the Kepler mine in Turkey, uh, which produces um, uh, ex- at extremely low cost. I think cash costs are around $400 an ounce. Mm. And then they have um, uh, uh, some mines in Australia, which are all high costs, which are about to be uh, sold to an external uh, party. Mm-hmm. So Kepler uh, as a standalone operation is very profitable. I think this mine makes about $200 million in operating profits per year. Mm. Uh, Alastor has about 250 million uh, cash in the bank, debt free, and with the sale of the Australian assets, I don't know what that will bring, but I would mm-hmm. say at least 200 million. Mm-hmm. You have a company uh, which has about 450 million dollars in cash in the bank, trades below 1 billion market cap, and produces about 200 million uh, free cash flow from a world class asset in, in Turkey. Um, uh, they had uh, a CEO uh, reappointment just of late. The old CEO uh, has left the company. Now is to see the former CFO who's leading the company. And he has a, a good uh, discipline in financially uh, modeling the new structure of Kepler because the market was unsure um, how they want to uh, move forward if they should bring a sulfide portion of this Kepler mining to production, which is associated with a lot of capex, 300 million or even more. And uh, I think the company is now just guiding for much more clarity uh, how they want growth and how they want to spend the money to, uh, to expand Kepler. Very so, interesting. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Uh, uh, let's just uh, steal some time from the next guest. Endeavor Mining, uh, TSX, EDV, 75 cents, 412 million shares. What, what, what do you like about that one? Endeavor Mining is a West African gold producer. <clears throat> um, uh, in this market, nobody probably likes uh, West Africa because of political risk. But Endeavor, um, I think, is, um, is an attractive mid-tier uh, um, producer. It's um, uh, profitable at current gold prices. Uh, All-in costs, I would say, is around $1,080 an ounce. Um, they have multiple projects um, which are uh, being built uh, and expanded right now. Uh, the company could produce something like 400,000 ounces of gold by 2016. Um, the, the growth is financed, um, and uh, the company has a market cap of below $300 million an ounce. So this is something when you see appetite getting back into the market, investors willing to take some risk, um, I think Endeavor could be uh, one of these companies that... Uh, have a good home run. Florian, we are out of time. I want to thank you very much once again for being with us. Uh, your insights are very much valued. We want to thank you again for, uh, for taking your time uh, to be with us today. Thank you, Jay. 
Folks, don't uh, don't go away, though, because we're going to be right back with Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains, precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group Metals, Nickel, and Copper property, a large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome to welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me again, uh, well, Daniel McAdams. He's uh, he's with us almost every week, but he's been uh, traveling and uh, uh, in Hawaii and on his way back to Washington right now uh, because Daniel is really a, a regular on this show. He is uh, he is executive director of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Uh, because he's on a regular uh, a regular basis on this show, I'm not going to read his bio, but uh, you can read about Daniel uh, on the Voice America Business Channel. On the uh, uh, his bio is uh, is posted there. Uh, you know, because our foreign policy is so much, in my view, opposed to the Constitution of the United States, and because I believe our warmongering is playing a major role in economic and moral destruction of our country, not to mention the destruction of freedom and liberties here at home. Well, I think it's so important to have Daniel on and also uh, to bring to your attention the Ron Paul Institute. And you can go there and read excellent articles about what's really going on uh, around the world as opposed to what you're going to hear on the mainstream media. And that site is uh, ronpaulinstitute.org. Uh, so uh, I'm really pleased to, to have you with me again, Daniel. Welcome back. It's great to be with you, Jay. Thanks for having me. It's really good to have you. You see, you know, I, I, I should just mention to our listeners, uh, by the way, that Ron Paul is actually going to be here in the metropolitan area, New York City. He's actually going to be, uh, as I see on, on the website, he's going to be at Barnes and Noble today at seven o'clock. That's at the, um, uh, that's at uh, 91 Old Country Road at Carl Place on Long Island. That's a bookstore that I've gone to many times. Living here in Queens as I do, I wish I had the time to go out and meet Dr. Paul. But uh, I guess he's uh, actually 
Uh, he's written a new book, or at least is in, involved with a new book that has to do with homeschooling. Do you know anything about that, Daniel? Sure, exactly. I think it's actually the release date is today. Um, uh-huh. And it's... Um, it really is the next chapter in his uh, in his push for these you know civil liberties and civil rights, uh, the the right for American uh, parents to homeschool their children and to do it as they please. And uh, you know we're talking about the future of our of our liberty movement of of people that are attracted to free markets and uh, attracted to peace and prosperity. And you know homeschooling is just is just exploding and the success is just incredible. So he's really riding the wave by writing this book now and. Uh, it's exciting that he's going to be in New York and signing these books. You know, it's interesting that he would come to New York, though. I would think there would be a, a more of a hotbed uh, for um, for homeschooling in in mid in the Midwest or in the South. But uh, I guess apparently there's some interest around here. Or he wouldn't, or he wouldn't, uh, you know, launch this thing here in New York City. Sure. Well, you know, you got to. Maybe you've got to go where it's needed most. <laughs> yeah, well, that could be. You know, well, certainly one thing I know for sure is that the dictatorship that is evolving in America, and unfortunately, I think, I think you probably agree that what we've got, powerful dictatorship forces, forces towards, towards that and, uh, towards that direction, taking away our liberties. One of the, uh, cornerstones to the, to our growing, uh, loss of freedom and dictatorship in our country is, the statist educational system, which is a monopoly uh, educational system for sure. And, of course, uh, if you homeschool, uh, you're allowing your kids to think, uh, to think freely. And I guess there's some pretty strong evidence, Daniel, that homeschooling kids do far better than peop- in general than kids do uh, in, the, in the public schools uh, on their test. Is that right? Sure, across the board. I mean, in every, in every measure of performance, uh, kids that are homeschooled do do better, you know, and it's uh, it's uh, that's why it's such a, a growing uh, movement. You know, it's just yeah. incredible if you look at the scale of growth in homeschooling over the past five or ten years. It's just I guess. amazing, and you know, homeschoolers made up a huge portion of Dr. Paul's supporters in his various campaigns. Oh, know, I don't so, I... because they, they they're fighting for that kind of personal liberty. Right. Well, uh, you're you have a couple of young kids at home. Are you homeschooling them? Yes, indeed, and we're um, we're excited about Dr. Paul's new homeschool curriculum as well. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's got uh, great people like Tom Woods on board, and so it's a great opportunity to to teach your kids Austrian economics and and uh, good real history, and so it's exciting. You know, Daniel, I just have to mention I just heard about uh, about this last weekend or a couple of days ago when I was in Toronto. The Mises Institute had a couple of young kids there, and they were talking about. Uh, about Ron Paul's homeschooling uh, curriculum. Very exciting indeed. Well, um, anyway, uh, I want to get to the Institute for Peace and Prosperity. The leading article today uh, was written by Dr. Paul, uh, and it's titled, Has the Tide Turned Against Warmongers? Uh, in that article, Dr. Paul uh, cites some evidence that that, may, that that indeed may be the case. Can you tell our listeners, give us some uh, some news along those lines? Sure. Well, that's Dr. Paul's weekly column. He writes a column every week, and this week he talks about, uh, you know, he gives us a good news story, which is that, you know, when the president proposed to start attacking Syria, uh, he was met with such a resounding no from the American people that even Congress, which usually sheepishly goes along, although congressional leaders in, in, in both houses were enthusiastic about the president's uh, request, uh, the rank and file started hearing such resistance 
from their constituents back home, and it only increased as the administration kept trying to explain its rationale. So it really is an, an almost unprecedented, historic situation where the people of the U.S. Uh, demanded that their congressional representatives vote against this. And when the president saw that he was about to lose this vote, uh, he wanted to... Um, he certainly didn't want to have a vote and have it re- recorded as a no. He wanted to preserve, uh, you know, that uh, veneer of, uh, of, of, of legality if he does decide to strike. But nevertheless, what an incredible victory uh, for, for, you know, this great movement toward, toward a more rational and sane foreign policy. Indeed, and of course, it wasn't only in the United States. Uh, in England as well, there's, there's been um, uh, a resistance here, hasn't there been? Sure, and that was a, it was a great help. I mean, the day that uh, I think it was the day that the president announced he would seek authorization from Congress was the day that the UK Parliament voted not to participate. So it gave a huge boost. But you know, Jay, this is uh, and there, there have been a couple of articles written about this. This is a great uh, victory over the president's visible efforts to foment uh, war in Syria. However, as unfortunately we see today, he continues his covert and semi-covert efforts to uh, to introduce hostil- more hostilities into Syria. Uh, you probably saw today that he's decided to waive parts of the Arms Export Act to allow yeah. him to, con- uh, to uh, continue to export arms to the so-called Syrian rebels. Mm-hmm. You know, Daniel, as you were talking uh, here, I just had to think of a movie I saw years ago, Enemy of the State. <laughs> uh, you mentioned uh, you you mentioned that um, the leadership, you know, the the further you get down the line into the rank and file uh, Congress, uh, but when you get to the leadership and key committees and so forth, they're almost always uh, on on the side of the um, uh, of the military industrial complex of the neocons. And as I recall, you know, there was a senator that didn't go along. In the movie, there was a senator that didn't go along with uh, the legislation that the rich and powerful corporate interest wanted to put forward. And, uh, you know, he gets a rope around his neck and, and, and murdered. And, <laughs> sure. and somebody uh, with a camera picks it up, and that's the whole movie. It's a, it's a uh, great movie. But, yes. you know, Jeez. you know, you, you wonder how far removed that, you know, how unrealistic that is. Because why is it? That you always have in these key committees, the, the the leaders always backing the same goons. Sure. Well, they're 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 a little bit more immune to you know the the whims of the will of the constituents because yeah. they have there's so much money riding on these leaders. Uh, they mm-hmm. always pick the most safe types. But you know, Jay, I was with Dr. Paul in Congress for uh, uh, serving on his staff for 12 years, and I can tell you that in rank and file offices. Americans would be surprised at what kind of weight a, a, a nice coordinated effort to let the congressman know a position on a certain item has. You know, polite mm-hmm. phone call, knowing the issues, following up with an email, what have you. There really is an incredible power there. And I think what happened is some of these offices were bombarded with, you know, see, even 100 phone calls. I remember in our office, if we got 50 phone calls in a day, we knew something was up. And we yeah. paid attention. Well, not that we, you know, not, not that we're waiting to be swayed, but we know that something's happening. We need to find more out of, about it. So well, I would, I would, I would imagine. Yeah, I would imagine, Daniel, if, if Ron Paul got 50 phone calls, that would be amazing because most people would know they're not going to sway him. <laughs> uh, Ron Paul would, uh, so, but a lot of these guys uh, can probably more easily be swayed because Ron stood on principle. It had, had nothing to do with being reelected. That's what I think made him stand out above everyone else uh, in Congress, virtually everyone else, uh, probably 
was his purity of principle, and uh, sure. you know, it didn't didn't matter. Um, it didn't didn't matter if he lost a vote or two here and there. Uh, somehow, remarkably, I think people really admired him and returned him to Congress. But okay, so so we've got this. We got President Obama saying, "Well, I don't really care about uh, selling arms to terrorists." In this case, it's it's for the Americans, uh, the American people's good. We're gonna we're gonna sell these horrible human beings, these these deadly weapons, right? I mean, he's he's waving the terrorist. Uh, sure. Some actually, we're we're selling them to the Saudis, and the Saudis are giving them to the terrorists in Syria. <laughs> oh, how wonderful! Okay, so now uh, to give you an idea, I mean, I saw this headline. Uh, today from uh, a publication, uh, I can't remember if it was the Christian Post. I don't know about this publication. It's on the Internet. And uh, the headlines were Syrian jihadist slits throat of Christian man refusing to deny Christ, then taunts his fiance with, uh, quote, Jesus didn't come to save him. What about that? I mean, these are the people that we're sending our money. These are the people that Obama wants to support, the people that are slitting Christians' throats. Yeah, this, I mean, it's a, it's an anecdotal piece of information, but it's certainly very compelling, and we see a pattern. Look at this, this uh, Christian village in Syria that was overrun by these jihadists, uh, who demanded that they either convert or, or be, or be killed. Mm-hmm. And, um, so you, there is a pattern of these guys, and, and not only Christians that they're terrorizing, they're terrorizing a lot of Muslims that don't want to go along with this radicalized view. Yeah. Uh, so they're they're pretty equal opportunity in their terrorism, unfortunately. Yeah. And you're right; these are the people on the upper hand in the Obama administration. Uh, they keep trying to tell us, "Oh no, don't worry, we can control who gets it. You know, we can vet these yeah. guys. Uh, you know, it's don't, yeah. don't worry about it." But if you look at the at the system they have for vetting them, it's it ha- it's full of holes. You know, and um, Senator Bob Corker over the over the week or yesterday, I believe. Uh, uh, said, oh, don't worry that uh, he's, uh, he's waived this. Uh, we're going to get him to the right people. The intelligence agencies have a good handle. And then listen to this. He said, quote, there's going to be mistakes. There's going to be people who are going to get arms that shouldn't be getting them, but we still should do everything we can, end quote. Mm-hmm. So, you know, think back to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan uh, and what that led to, you know, support for right. these radicals. Then it led to 9-11. We can't right. afford mistakes to be made in this. Well, I'm just, uh, I, it, you know, I don't see how our foreign policy could be worse than it is in terms of the results we're getting. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. It's, it's Einstein's definition of insanity. You keep doing the things that fail and expect to change. You, so I, I don't imagine, really... Sorry, I was yeah. going to say, can you imagine an investor approaching his portfolio in this way? Right. Well, there, maybe if, if people are, are self-destructive, they do. But in terms of equal opportunity, I should mention also... Uh, that John McCain is all for these people, uh, aiding and abetting these people that will slit Christians' throats as well. So is, uh, so it's not a Republican or Democrat thing, is it? It's about killing foreigners for money. It's about killing people overseas for money. Absolutely. And, you know, the mainstream media plays a big role in this. I'm, I'm sure the McCains of the world, you know, they read the, the Washington Post, they read the mainstream. They don't read the kinds of things that you read, Jay, you know, where you try to dig mm-hmm. deeper and see what's really behind these things. And so a lot of them just simply aren't informed. They're satisfied with the mainstream. They don't want to look deeper, you know, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really tragic. What do you, uh, with three minutes left here, I have to ask you about this, uh, this deal, so-called deal, between Russia and the U.S. Uh, to, uh, you know, that, that, uh, to have Syria send their 
their their poisonous weapons uh, to the United Nations. What do you make of that? Well, I think everyone's speculating as to you know whether the Russians saved Obama in the nick of time. That's possibly true. I think, and I wrote about something about this the other day on on Dr. Paul's uh, Institute website. Yeah, I think it's just vague enough that it will satisfy the Obama administration, uh, and it's also imprecise enough that if, you know, in a year's time, uh, every one of these weapons haven't been destroyed, uh, there will be some wiggle room. So I think it, it walked us back from a serious crisis and walked the president back from a serious crisis, and, uh, in, and in that it is a good thing. Um, but I think uh, with the administration continuing, even ramping up its support for the rebels, you could see this deal fall apart. So, you know, um, here, here's the thing I, I wanted to ask you about. I don't, I don't believe we addressed it. The Leon Panetta last night telling Charlie Rose that even if the American, even if the Congress says no to President uh, Obama, if in the president's judgment he believes uh, it is a national security issue, he not only has a right but an obligation to defy the United States Congress and to go forward uh, and and get involved in Syria with uh, with bombing and killing the Syrian people. What, what about how can how clear could the Constitution be with respect to waging war? Well, my guess uh, and yet, is he's going on the the War Powers Resolution from the from the early seventies, which was designed was supposed to rein in the president's ability to make war on his own after the debacle in Vietnam. But even according to you know what Dr. Paul would consider the unconstitutional War Powers Resolution, even that broad reading of the president's war making powers. Uh, Panetta is way outside of the rule. If you look at the uh, if you look at the War Powers Resolution, it says the president is allowed to introduce troops into hostile environment or where hostility is imminent, only in three cases: a declaration of war, specific statutory authorization, or three, a national emergency created by an attack on the U.S., its territories, possessions, or armed forces. That's it. And there's no yeah. way what he's talking about fits into either any of those three categories. So where yeah. are you getting this from? Yeah, I, I don't know. And I, I'm just wondering, do you feel unsafe if we don't go into Syria? I feel unsafe if we go into Syria and put these, these kinds of people in power that they're supporting. That's right. what makes us feel unsafe. That's how we got 9-11. Right. Right, and it seems so obvious, and yet the American people are so brainwashed to believe what they hear on the mainstream media yeah, uh, that, in fact, and, you know, way, Jay, I think I think there's good news there. I think people are listening. Well, I think that's probably right, and then I wonder to what extent some of these goons aren't going to start coming after those of us who are who are uh, objecting to <laughs> the sort of uh, I would say uh, dictatorial empire building regime changing. Non-constitutional government that we have, so it's uh, you know we, but we have to stand up for what we believe is right. And uh, Daniel, I want to thank you for very much for your efforts in that regard. And of course, Dr. Paul, it's uh, the Ron Paul Institute, and it's ronpaulinstitute.org, I believe, right, Daniel? Thank you. Yes, Jay, that's it. People should go to. All the best to you, Daniel. We'll talk to you again, hopefully next week as well. Thanks much. Bye bye. Thank you very much. Well, folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with some closing thoughts on today's show and a word about next week's guest. Don't go away. I'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
Gold and Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. SGX Resources is an exploration gold company with multiple advanced exploration projects in the Timmins Gold Camp. Recent high-grade intersections at SGX's Tully Deposit include 14 meters at 20.1 grams per ton and 17.6 meters at 11.1 grams per ton. The deposit is currently more than 600 meters along strike with a depth of up to 250 meters and remains open in all directions. SGX Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange with the trading symbol SXR. Visit our website at www.sgxresources.com. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Journey Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Just uh, like to summarize a little bit what we heard today from our various guests. You know, I'm looking at the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity website, and this website is just chuck full of very, very interesting and I think essential and important information about what's really going on in our country as opposed to what you hear by the military industrial complex owned and operated uh, mainstream media. For example, there is a uh, an excellent article here uh, on a uh, giving a short history of war in Syria from 2006 to 2014. There is another article titled "License to Kill: The Growing Phenomenon of Police Shooting Unarmed American Citizens." Um, there is also an article about the Arab Spring's final uh, post uh, post mortem. Uh, another article that Daniel has written. Uh, on the manufacturing in, uh, in the United States and, and how our foreign policy is hurting that. There's also an article about the U.S. and Russia reaching the agreement on Syria. Uh, 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 so much, I think, very, very important information. There's the Neocon Watch in which uh, the Ron Paul Institute looks at uh, the warmongering Americans who will throw away the Constitution in order for uh, to enhance the the ability of the United States to uh, militarily go into other countries, kill countless tens of thousands of people, take over their country basically, and grab the resources for uh, for the not for your sake and your benefit and mine, uh, but for the ruling elite and a small number of bankers and institutions that benefit so so mightily from uh, from war. Uh, I think you know this is a moral issue, and uh, you know I, I feel very very strongly about it, as I'm sure you can tell. Which is why I have Daniel uh, McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute uh, uh, for Peace and Prosperity on my show so often. Well, even though the United States, it seems to me, is moving very strongly and very steadfastly towards a dictatorship and an empire, uh, we still have to feed our families. We have to take care 
of those we love. And so that is why uh, we have had uh, people uh, on the show like today. We've had Chen Lin, who I think brought out, gave us some very good ideas about investing uh, in the Pan Orient. Uh, you know, Chen has his reasons, and the markets sometimes take a long time, but usually Chen ends up being right. And my problem is hanging in there and being persistent long enough sometimes to recognize the value. Pan Orient is certainly one of those situations. Harvest Natural Resources, very interesting story at $5.04 uh, today uh, with a $6 offer for just one of their projects, uh, an oil project in Venezuela, which they have an offer to sell. Uh, this stock could be worth several times its current price as Chen pointed out. You might want to go back and listen to what Chen had to say if you didn't hear that earlier today. Uh, then uh, um, Florian Siegfried, of course, uh, had a lot of great ideas with junior mining companies and uh, mid-tier producers, I think, that with gold and silver prices down as low as they are uh, and the mining shares getting really walloped hard, I think that uh, there is a good chance uh, that now is a very, very good entry point. I'm certainly doing that for my personal portfolio. have tried to keep a, a cash available so I could go in and buy these uh, mining stocks at, uh, at their current uh, low prices. We may see some more lows, but my sense is that we're very close, if not at the lows, uh, we're very close to them. Uh, Paul Usum, I think, first-time guest, had a lot of great facts and ideas uh, and and uh, gave some real coherent reasons to believe and to understand why the gold price is declining and why the silver price, uh, gold and silver, has been down in spite of the fact that we are getting enormous amounts of uh, demand and purchases coming out of China and India and elsewhere. Uh, clearly, the powers that be, the same people that get us into war, that want people to believe in the dollar so they can keep financing wars and raping and pillaging the world, our military industrial complex, uh, our John McCain's of this world, our President Obama's of this world that are out there inflaming and, and dumbing down the American public so that the people can get the rich and ruling elite can get richer. Uh, this is what it's all about. And the gold fits into that conspiracy because you have to keep people confident in the con job of the century, the U.S. dollar, or else the empire falls apart. Well, we want to thank you for listening again to today's show. Next week, I should tell you, we're going to have a very young uh, fella, uh, Elijah Johnson, and we're going to have his interview with Ann Bernhardt. I think this is really an important interview. Uh, she talks about how they're destroying the commodity markets and, and a lot of the geopolitical stuff that goes along with it. Ranting Andy Hoffman will be with us as well. And Greg Johnson, uh, who the CEO of Prophecy Platinum, which I think has the world's best platinum group metals project. It's a world-class project in Canada. Uh, Greg is going to be with us. You know, we just saw some phenomenal, as I mentioned earlier, a phenomenal intersection of 347 meters of uh, platinum group metals uh, over two and a half grams. Uh, so a very, very good story. That is all the time we have. I want to thank Tacey Trump, my uh, producer, and um, uh, and um, uh, for making this show viable. Also, I almost forgot Matt Widener who is really the guy that makes this show work, my engineer. Thanks uh, to all you for making this logistically possible. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.